I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So what if Byron Leftwich, the Bucks offensive coordinator, gets a head coaching job with, say, I don't know, maybe Jacksonville? And what if Todd Bowles lands as a head coach in Las Vegas? And they both take a couple of assistant coaches from the Bucks as coordinators. And what if Tom Brady looks at this and decides to retire? Could all of that happen in the same season? It may be happening right now. Oh, yeah, John Spitek also in Las Vegas to interview with the Raiders. So you could lose a front office guy as well. It's an interesting story, and we're going to talk about it. We've also got Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times, our great baseball writer. We're going to talk about the Hall of Fame, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, not voted in the pro, in, into the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame, listen to me, Pro Football Hall of Fame, not voted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in their last try as a modern-day candidate. We'll talk about steroids and baseball and all of that. They were on Mark's ballot as well. We'll compare that to the Pro Football Hall of Fame balloting. Rondi Barber, of course, is a finalist for that, and others will tell you what the differences are between Pro Football and the Baseball Hall of Fame. Interesting conversation with Mark Tompkin coming up, who answered one of our mailbag questions, by the way, which which I love. Hey, folks, uh, the 18th annual Firestone Grand Prix of St. Petersburg, presented by RP Funding, it's happening this year, February 25th through the 27th. The temporary circuit is a 1.8-mile, 14-turn configuration using the streets, circling Pioneer Park, the Duke Energy Center for the Arts, the Daly Museum, and extending, of course, all the way onto the runways, at Albert Witted Airport. Visit gpstpete.com for all the race information and tickets. All right, so interesting day, of course, on Wednesday. Byron Leftwich was in Jacksonville uh, for his second interview. The first one was virtual. He met with the Jaguars. Um, I think I wrote probably Wednesday morning that Leftwich and the Jaguars were talking about a contract. There were some details that they still had not worked out or agreed upon. Later in the day, um, Adam Schefter, according to my sources, reported that the Jaguars had not decided on a a coach, that they were going to interview more coaches, and they had not offered a contract to anybody. Well, okay, that came from the Jaguars. Not trying to disparage Adam Schefter's report. Not what I had heard. And as we're doing this podcast on Wednesday night, the Jaguars, in fact, are going to interview Nathaniel Hackett for a second time, I believe, on Thursday, today. Um, So they're going to continue their process of interviewing candidates. And so there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of pushback about, well, your reporting said and you said it was close and you said, yes, I did. Um, The Jaguars obviously have put out a different story. And I just want to explain how this sort of works. Um, you know, teams are able to talk to more than one candidate at one time about parameters, about contracts, about control, right? So you have a GM in Trent Balky. You have an ownership, obviously, in Shad Khan. They have a vision for their franchise. They have an organizational chart. They know 
uh, for example, who they want to be in charge of personnel, you know, how much authority the coach is going to have on hiring his assistants, how much money he's going to have, all that. So a lot of moving parts, right? So you interview Byron Leftwich, and he still, by the way, by all accounts, um, including Schefter's and Ian Rappaport's, he's still a very, very strong candidate for this Jacksonville job. I had several people with the Buccaneers tell me on Wednesday they think Byron Leftwich is getting the Jacksonville head coaching job. They believe that. I don't know how they believe it, but they're in much better position than I am to, to make that judgment. Um, what I know is that, you know, you can do two things at once, right? You can begin negotiating or topping, talking parameters with one coach, and then as you're doing so, almost as leverage at times, say, well, we're also going to talk to this coach, and, and, and maybe we'll go down this road. So, you know, this is part of the process of hiring coaches, and it, is, it has gone on for years. Um, I would just say this, that until you see – a head coach or the new head coach standing at a podium and they call a press conference to introduce him and there's reporters out there in front of him asking him questions, these deals are not done, okay? They're never done until they announce the guy and he walks out there on the stage, period. And I have lived this over and over again just with the Buccaneers in the 30-something years that I've done it right here. Happened twice with Bill Parcells was the runaway bride. Saw an owner in Hugh Culver House before the Glazers owned the team back in 91. Stand up, called a press conference to introduce Bill Parcells as his new head coach, and Parcells didn't show. I remember the, the great late uh, Will McDonough um, from CBS Sports. I walked in. He's talking to Bob Costas. I look up at the TV, and he goes, Bob, I think Bill Parcells just didn't feel comfortable taking the Tampa Bay job. And I went, ugh. And my jaw dropped, and there was Hugh Culverhouse, no coach, walking in front of a full press conference arena saying, I thought we had a deal, but anyway, I thought we had a wedding, but for the record, there's no honeymoon. And I was like, this is surreal. Like, he left. He's the runaway bride. He left. He, I feel like I've been left at the altar. That's the other thing he said. And that's how Hugh Culverhouse sounded, by the way. Um, and so – you're thinking, well, how could an organization be so sure that they have hired a head coach, that they call the media to the press conference and the coach doesn't come? He doesn't show up. <laughs> okay? That happened once with Parcells. Happened again with Bill Parcells. Back in, you know, 2002. Um, 2001 season postseason they're going to the Bucks are going to Philadelphia Tony Dungy's made the playoffs there's two weeks left in the regular season but he's going to make the playoffs they're going to be a wild card team and they're going to Philadelphia where their seasons always went to die previous year they, they got beat and got beat bad up there and I find out that the Bucks have hired or in the process of hiring Bill Parcells, who at the time was on ESPN doing, um, you know, studio work. And so I, I had this story cold. I, 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 I had all kinds of sources, including his agent. And I wrote a story on the Friday before the Sunday playoff game that Bill Parcells had a secret deal with the Buccaneers to coach them 
five-year contract, five million a year, all this. Had, had, they were going to keep the defensive staff, had who was coming in to be GM, all of it, right? And I nailed it because I had talked to his agent and others. And so they, they held up the, the newspaper on ESPN the day of the game, and, and you know nobody was talking about it. And Parcells was nervous on ESPN, sort of denying that he had any agreement. Tony Dungy loses the game and loses badly. They fire Tony Dungy like the next Monday. And all of a sudden, they deny that Bill Parcells, you know, that they've contacted him. But then they contact him. <laughs> and so we go through the dog and pony show of, yeah, they're talking to Parcells now. Well, Parcells gets pushed back from the coaching community because, like, I can't believe that you just hijacked Tony Dungy's job before he had a chance to save it by going to the playoffs and winning. And then also he was going through a divorce. So any contract he would have signed with the Bucks, probably half of that would have gone to his ex-wife or soon-to-be ex-wife. For whatever reason, Bill Parcells decided after a few days, I'm out. I'm not interested in taking the Bucks job, which the Bucks owners maintained they had never offered him a job. They were merely talking. Okay, that led to a 30-something day search, and eventually they made the trade for John Gruden. They won the Super Bowl. The next year, okay, after denying this for a solid year that they had any kind of agreement with Bill Parcells, the next year Bill Parcells takes the job as the Dallas Cowboys head coach. Okay? The Tampa Bay Buccaneers pulled out a signed contract with Bill Parcells' signature to become the coach of the Bucks. The year prior, they turned it into the NFL and asked the league to award them draft picks as compensation from the Dallas Cowboys. I'm not making this up. So when is a coach a coach? Well, they had a signed contract, right? They literally had a signed contract from Bill Parcells that somehow wasn't binding. And he didn't become the coach. John Gruden won the Super Bowl, and they still wanted draft pick compensation. Uh, several years later, Mark Dominic's the head, the GM of the Bucks. They're looking for a head coach after Raheem Morris. And I write a story cause I find out that Chip Kelly, the coach of Oregon who had won national championships, he's talking to the Bucks and they are working on a deal, trying to finalize a deal to make him the Buccaneers head coach. He's going to make the jump from Oregon to the Bucks, to the NFL. So I write the story. Um, it hits the wires, all that stuff. Well, it happened to be the day, the eve of of uh, recruiting day, the eve of signing day, right? National signing day, letter of intent day. Think about the pressure of a college team that has all these recruits ready to sign at Oregon, and a story breaks that says, yeah, that coach that was recruiting you, yeah, he's going to the NFL. So for the next mm, few hours anyway, every Pac-12 team, teams from all over the country are calling these recruits that are committed to Oregon and saying, hey, man, Chip Kelly's not even going to be there. Have you heard the latest? He's going to the NFL. So Kelly gets cold feet. I go to bed. I've written a story based on what I know at the time. At 5.30 in the morning, I get a, a text message from Mark Dominic. Chip Kelly pulled out. He got cold feet. He pulled out. And he stayed at Oregon. And they had to start over again. 
And the next year, he did come out of Oregon, and he went to the Philadelphia Eagles, and that's when he was, you know, the Eagles coach for a couple of years, won a, 10 games the first two years, I think. And meanwhile, Mark Dominic again, left at the altar, thought he had a deal. Chip Kelly got cold feet. He ended up scrambling and hiring Greg Schiano. So we went from Chip Kelly to Greg Schiano. So my point of all this is, you know, you can hammer away all you want to about the process and about what I wrote and who writes what and when. But at the end of the day, these are these are negotiations about how much control you have, uh, what you can pay your assistants, how many coaches you can bring in. Because remember, Urban Meyer has a whole staff under contract, right? So they could say, you know what, that strength coach we have, yeah, he ain't going anywhere, right? And if you're the coach, you could say, well, I got, con- I should have control over my staff, my entire staff. So there's all kinds of, of anything from coaches' salaries to cars to you name it that you're going to be you know, hammering out negotiating. And in the process, they're well within their rights to say, you know what, I, it's been fun talking to you and your agent, but I think we're going to bring in Nathaniel Hackett here and, and, and chat him up a little bit. And then all of a sudden – you got to make a decision, right? Well, how important is that thing that we have a wedge between us really now? Because they could give the job to somebody else. So this is negotiating 101. And unfortunately for Byron, he's a first-time head coach. They're going to try to exert a lot of control on him, I think, because a lot of teams will do that. I've seen this one do it. Um, and he's going to have, you know, if he's offered the job, and I believe he has been, um, He's going to have to decide what he's comfortable with. I mean, the one thing he does have, if he takes it, is Trevor Lawrence. And boy, that's that's the biggest piece, right? If you're going to be a head coach, first time or otherwise, who's your quarterback? Can you win a Super Bowl with him? And he's a young guy, didn't progress very much under Urban Meyer's first year, obviously. But Byron has played that position at that very franchise. He's beloved there. Um, he's seen the game under center. There's not many guys like that in the NFL as head coaches, and he's in a position to really help Trevor Lawrence. We'll see if he gets the job. I think he's the best candidate. I think the Jaguars think he's the best candidate. But again, it's more than just you know the fit. It has to it has to be something that Byron Leftwich is comfortable with. So I don't know what's going to happen as we do this podcast uh, for Thursday. It could be over by the time you hear it. Uh, I had somebody from the Bucks. I've had two people from the Bucks tell me that they believe, not me, but they believe Byron Leftwich is going to get the Jaguars head coaching job. Take it for what it's worth. We'll all find out together. But that's sort of how fluid these negotiations can be. And 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 the reason they can do this, no one's Steve, no one's hired a coach. I mean, what do we got? Eight or nine openings? Nine. And and, and yeah, nine openings, and nobody has actually pulled the trigger. Believe me, when somebody hires a head coach, you're going to see several more hired quickly after that. Well, now you've seen a couple GM positions be filled too, which yes. some of those coaching decisions we're waiting on getting a GM in place. Minnesota, um, yes, Giants. Chicago, the Giants. So now that may speed up their processes too. Mm-hmm. And, and now that you're down to just four teams left in the playoffs, a lot more – coaches are available to talk to like Byron left, which went and interviewed in person, et cetera. So right. yeah, the dominoes are going to have to start to fall pretty quick. And you know, here's what's interesting. Um, it's not just Byron left, which 
Todd Bowles, guess where he is today? Las Vegas. And not to play the blackjack tables and not to go to the chapel. Or the program. He is there. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, there you go. He is there um, to interview for the head coaching job of the Oakland Raiders. And, of course, with Mark Davis. Now, he's interviewed for the Jaguars. He's interviewed for the Vikings job, I believe. And so, you know, his name is certainly out there, and rightfully so. Um, you know how else is out there the same day, today? John Spitek. John Spitek, the Bucks vice president of player personnel. The guy who tabbed the pursuit of Tom Brady as Operation Shoe jo- Shoeless, easy for me to say, Shoeless Joe Jackson from the old, you know, Black Sox scandal in the movie where if you build it, they will come. Well, they had built it, meaning they had built a great franchise, a great football team with talent, and Tom Brady would come. Because they used that as a code word because they didn't want to talk about it openly about their pursuit of Brady in the building. So John Spitek has done a tremendous job since he's been here the last five or six years. Look at the drafts. Look how they have improved. And also, I would say this, with all the injuries they had a year ago, and I mean they were attacked in position groups like defensive back and others, look at what Spitek and his his crew was able to do in securing the D. Delaney's, the Richard Sherman's, um, the Pierre Desirs, all those guys that were able to hold things together and win 14 games, which is really hard to do under the best of circumstances. John Spitek is a star. He's worked for Cleveland as a college scout. He's worked in Denver. He's worked for Jason Light, obviously, who gives him a ton of credit. And I think, and some people at the Bucks believe, that he is going to get a general manager's job and maybe with the Raiders. And you just wonder... If he's the you know much like in New York, right, where the you know the the GM came from Buffalo and he's looking at Leslie Frazier and Brian uh, Dayball, Dayball, the offensive coordinator, why wouldn't John Spitek consider if he's hired first? Why wouldn't he consider Todd Bowles, right? Somebody he knows very very well and has been successful. So this is all a way of saying that things can change. And think about the Bucks and their prospects. Like, if if Tom Brady knew that, you know what, we're going to have a good defense, but it's not Todd Bowles. He's not calling it. He's gone. It's somebody else, you know. And that somebody else, normally you would say, at least the Bucks would, would be like, okay, so if Bowles leaves, um, we'll make Larry Foote the defense coordinator. I think he's ready except that Larry Foote may be going to Jacksonville with Byron Leftwich, and the Bucks can't stop him. You cannot stop him. You know, uh, if a guy's going for a coordinator's job, he gets the opportunity to be promoted, and you can't stop a guy from a promotion. So they could lose up to four assistant coaches that way if they're all promoted to coordinator's positions. So it's really, really interesting – so if you took that and then Brady looks at that and he, you know, and then the other part of that, of course, is those those free agents could then say, hey, man, I play really good in Todd Bowles', Todd Bowles' defense. I think I'm going to go to the Raiders. They're paying me more money. I'm Jordan Whitehead. Um, you know, I'm Carlton Davis. I know I can go out there and, and play and be a star. And they're paying more money than Tampa Bay. Or if you're on offense and you're Alex Kappa, you know, or Ryan Jensen or something like that. And you go, you know what? 
I know Byron's offense. They're offering me more money. I'll go to Jacksonville. So, it you know, it's not just the coaches. It's free agents as well. So against all of that, could Tom Brady then say, you know what, we're not the same. We're not the same team. We don't have the same coaches. We've lost a lot of, you know, coordinators, all of them. Uh, we've lost some of the guys behind them that would have taken their jobs. It's going to be tough, man. I mean, I, it sounds like it's, it, you know, all of that probably won't happen because that's sort of the nuclear option, I guess. But some of it will. But, but some of it will happen, and it will all have an impact. No matter who you're talking about, it's going to have an impact on how you approach the season. And also, I think it's going to impact Tom Brady. It's going to impact what his decision is, ultimately, I believe. Well, and a lot of those free agents, too. Yeah. I mean, you know, and Dominican Sue, Carlton Davis, right. Rob Gronkowski, mm-hmm. Chris Godwin, if he's not franchised again. Leonard Fournette. Leonard Fournette. Yeah. I mean, all those guys could say, hey, uh, you know, it, the the band's being broken up here, not just on the team, but the the coaching staff in, in front office, possibly, that, you know, maybe I will look elsewhere. And yeah. it, it may not happen, but it's all very possible. But it gives them, you know what it does? It gives them a market because... Mm-hmm. A lot of these guys, when they get out to free agency, they you know, my I think I'm worth ten million a year, and then it comes back and it's like, yeah, you're really about worth about five. But here's two teams. You only need another team. You need two teams to bid on you. And if there's other staffs that are forming, and two of those staffs are coaches that you had here in Tampa Bay, well, those are really good contacts to have if you're a free agent. And what I have found about free agency is players go where they get the most money. First and foremost, all the players that came back last year, the Indomitian Sues, the Levante Davis, you know what? You know what? They were happy to come back because they wanted to run it back and win again. But you know why they came back? They all got paid, man. They all got paid. Nobody took the hometown discount. Trust me. And because of that, they were happy to come back. Well, I don't know how much salary cap room they're going to have this year. And some of those guys might not get what they're what they think they deserve. You know, and you can only franchise one guy, and it may be Chris Godwin for the second time in his career, and that might upset him because he's gone through the injury. He knows what it cost him financially had he made it to free agency. So it's really interesting, like when you think about the Bucks and just you know how fast things can change. From a year ago, they were playing in a game to win a Super Bowl. Confetti falls on their head, and they have a boat parade. And this year, of course, they're eliminated. But there's so many questions about what what this franchise will look like a year from now. It's or even less than a year from now. Actually, it's really fascinating. Okay, uh, with respect to the Bucks, some good news too. Of course, uh, they have three more Pro Bowl players uh, replacing some of the guys that can't make the game either because they're in the playoffs or injured or whatnot. Um, but uh, your latest Pro Bowl players from the Bucks, Mike Evans. Antoine Winfield Jr. and linebacker Devin White, all Pro Bowl players now. So you're going to say Pro Bowl safety Antoine Winfield Jr. and of course Pro Bowl linebacker Devin White. So pretty cool for them. They didn't make it on the on the first try, um, but they are going to be there. And that brings the number to eight, eight Pro Bowl players this year for the Buccaneers. Of course, Tristan Wirfs is not going to be able to participate. He might go for the week or something like that, but. Uh, contemplating surgery on his ankle. So, uh, but when you think about man having eight Pro Bowl players, even under even under the new format, that's pretty cool. 
Uh, it's going to be great, great for those guys as well. Hey, remember the uh, set on the downtown streets of the Sunshine City? It's the 18th annual Firestone Grand Prix of St. Petersburg, presented by RP Funding, and it kicks off Florida's spring break season with some high-speed excitement. Now visit gpsaintpete.com for race information and tickets. It's another racing season starting right here in St. Petersburg. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. All right, we got a mailbag question and Mark from St. Pete Beach tweeted us. Mark, which Hall of Fame process do you think makes more sense? The baseball Hall of Fame or the football Hall of Fame? (laughs) Okay, wait a minute. I recognize his voice. This isn't just Mark from St. Pete Beach. This is like Mark Topkin from St. Pete Beach, Mr. (laughs) Sunset, who late recently became Mr. Sunrise, which, by the way, I think sunsets are better than sunrises. But at my age, I like sunrises better because it means I lived another day. Um, What's you up, know, Rick? it's a, gonna give you it's a great, it's great to, it's great to hear you. It's great to have you participate in the mailbag. And, uh, this is a, this is a virtual mailbag now, uh, which might be a whole new thing, Steve. We might just have the people actually call in and ask the questions. That would be awesome. Um, you know what? I just watched the baseball hall of fame. Now, the thing that bothers me about the baseball hall of fame, there's a couple things that I like and a couple things I don't like. One thing that I, that I'm not sure about is, and obviously they played baseball really long time, right? Um, is that you can have a class potentially with no Hall of Famers in the modern day era, or you can have a class like we just had with David Ortiz in just one player for the modern day era, right? So that's different than the NFL, which, and we'll get into this in a minute, but about how you know there's there's a, a maximum of five players. There's always almost always five players, by the way, and then you'll have a senior candidate and a contributor. So they do it a little different, obviously, and we can get into what the pros and cons of all that is. First of all, let's just let's just throw this out there because this is all anybody's talking about, right? Like last time for Barry Bonds, right? Uh, in this, you can explain like the different times they can be eligible, but last time for Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, neither one got in. The steroid era has been a big topic, obviously, for a long time. Um, I saw your ballot. You had them both on your ballot couple things. Were you surprised they didn't get over the threshold, which is what, 75%, I think, of the Baseball Writers of America? And then, um, and, and, and now what, right? Like, what are they, where do they go now? Are they, do they have a chance in the future? What happens to their candidacy? Yeah, so to kind of start where you started was I, I wasn't surprised because I didn't think they were going to make it. I was disappointed. I was, I was hopeful maybe we'd see a surprise there sometimes. Voters give guys a little boost in their last year. Guys who've held out before kind of come around. And I mean, I did mm-hmm. that with Larry Walker a few years ago where I didn't really think he was. And I kind of kept looking at it and kept looking at it. And I don't know. Usually I'm like a smaller hall guy, but he was like, ah, all right. I gave him a vote. And I mean, my vote wasn't the difference or anything, but you know, people do that sometimes, but I thought maybe there'd be a little more of a, a boost for Clemens and bonds. Uh, there wasn't. So 
they don't make it. They go through 10 years. I did vote for them both for all 10 years. We've talked before about my little squiggly line. If basically if you, you may have been suspected and connected to steroid use, but if you weren't caught, if you didn't violate it, you didn't fail a test, you didn't violate a rule that was in place, I'll vote for you. So I vote for Bonds and Clements. Manny Ramirez did violate a rule he knew was in place. He got suspended. So I don't vote for Manny Ramirez. I did not vote for Alex Rodriguez. Um, so that, that's kind of where I draw my line. Um, they should be in the Hall of Fame. Look, Barry Bonds is the greatest hitter of this generation and, and maybe of all time, certainly in the conversation. Roger Clemens is the best starting pitcher of this generation and one of the best of all time. Uh, dominant throughout their careers. Dominant early in their careers before you started to notice changes, before Barry Bonds' hat size grew by three or four, whatever it was. Um, <laughs> these guys were really good players, and I, I just don't know how you have a Hall of Fame without them. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a museum, Rick. It's not a church. Like, Put on there that they were suspected of cheating. Put on the plaque that there was a cloud over. Put over on there that their performance was tainted by the steroid era. Put put them all in a separate like make the the the, the plaque hall is this massive room in Cooperstown. If you've ever been there, it's almost a spiritual experience to be standing in that room and see all the plaques and they're done by years. Well, maybe reorganize them. Make the steroid era its own wall or something. Whatever you want to do, but these guys should be in the Hall of Fame and uh, just they're not. It's frustrating. It's annoying. Um, there have been people that are totally happy about this and are like, good, if they, they should, no one should ever do wrong, and I bar the door, and I don't want any of them in if they've ever even been connected with something wrong. And That's fine. That's their opinion. But there's also people today ripping the writers saying they got it all wrong. They didn't have the guts to do it. Like 65% of almost 400 people voted for them. The problem is it's a really high standard. You do have to have 75%, as you said. And here's another thing that kind of gets lost in this. The Hall of Fame is part of the reason that these guys aren't going to make it. And I don't think the Hall of Fame wants them in, even though they've never come out and taken a public position. In 2014, they knew, you know, they saw what was coming. They saw what the next six, eight, ten years of ballots were going to look like. They knew these steroid era guys were coming up. And the Hall of Fame un, uh, unilaterally changed the rules. You were, used to be on the ballot for 15 years. They changed to 10. I happened to be there that year. I was fortunately in Cooperstown covering the induction because Tony La Russa of Tampa Native was going in. And we were in the media workroom and basically got a, like a little, hey, heads up, you're getting an email you're going to want to see. And it was from the Hall of Fame telling us they changed the rule. We're the voters. We didn't get a say in it. They changed it. And they did that because they, I think, knew that over time people would be more forgiving for Bonds and Clemens. And, and there's a great stat that was flying around the Internet last night that will show you this. It looked back at like the last four or five years. I think it was the last 59 first time voters, people that just got in their 10 years, which is what you have to have in BBWAA to become eligible to vote for the Hall of Fame. So of the 59 most recent first time voters, 51 voted for Bonds and Clements. Like it wow. was changing. The younger, more open minded writers mm -hmm. were more willing, I think, to be accepting and forgiving and understanding of the situation and realize these guys should be in the Hall of Fame. But by the Hall of Fame shortening that period, these guys ran out of time. So they're not in. They are not in. They are not going to be voted in by the baseball writers. Yeah, that's – listen, I, I agree with you. I have agreed with you. I think I think both those players in particular, and there's probably some more, but both those players um, should be in the Baseball Hall of Fame. It's, it's, it is, as you say, a museum. It's, it's the history of baseball. You can certainly, um, you know, explain um, – you know, sort of the steroid era in its own, you know, own part of things. Um, the the weird thing to me is, you know, I mean, 
baseball through the years has changed, right? The equipment has changed. I mean, there's been so many changes. And I'm not, look, I'm not holding a telethon for Roger Clemens or Barry Bonds because, frankly, in the case of Barry Bonds, wasn't the nicest guy. And and we'll talk about this when we get to talk about the Pro Football Hall of Fame. This vote is by human beings, right? Some of which, in the baseball writers, I don't have to tell you, I don't know how many dealings you have with Barry Bonds. Not the easiest dude to deal with, right? So I think a lot of... I think a lot of times that that is like the ultimate, well, watch this, right? Like, I'll, you know, you were an ass to me, uh, watch what I do to you. And and that's wrong because it's, you know, you got to put personalities aside somehow. You got to do all of that. There's not a lot of Boy Scouts necessarily in either Hall of Fame, okay? Uh, O.J. Simpson is in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. What are we going to do with that, right? So at the end of the day, all it's about is, you know, performance and we saw what these guys were capable of but the other thing is the the baseball owners profited from the steroid era okay they weren't they weren't checking blood when Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire you know had their home run race and and yet Sammy Sosa will never be in the pro in 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 the baseball hall of fame so that's where I like where's the culpability of Tony La Russa where is the culpability of anybody who benefited or profited from these guys uh, who were mashing balls the way they were and still the greatest players in the game even prior to that? So what do we do with that? How do we rationalize that, right? If you're a manager that benefited from some guy that you know hit 700 and something home runs, should that be on you? Should should you have those those victories erased from your record? You know what I'm saying? Like, who are we holding responsible here? Right, and and you know, a lot of people are upset that Bud Selig's in the Hall of Fame because he was commissioner during that era. Absolutely, and he initially didn't do anything about it, as you say, and then they you know, they kind of clumsily switched to a program of of testing, and they did start suspending players. But yeah, there's a lot of people. Just in the last couple of days, you've seen a lot of references to. How is it that the commissioner who was in charge of oversight during this period is in the Hall of Fame, but the players who were doing what was essentially common practice and nothing that they were specifically told was illegal and certainly wasn't being checked for, as you said, are being punished. And and look, Roger Clemens put out a statement last night. It was well-worded. It was light. It was funny, but it was obviously totally untrue, which was, I don't care about the Hall of Fame. I never played to get in the Hall of Fame. I played for my you know, respect to my family and, and friends and the competitiveness, and I did it all the right way. And probably every single thing in that sentence was un, in that paragraph was untrue to some degree. But, you know, it, it's just the reality. Those guys are not going to get in there. There is another avenue. Um, and I know you asked me this a minute ago, and I didn't give you the answer then. But there, there is another avenue, and, and there is a basically it, – it's got different names now, but it's kind of the Veterans Committee. And it's a 16-member right. group. It's some former players. It's some former executives. It's some media people. Um, it, it looks at different eras. So this is what we call the today's game eras, like the last 40 years or something. And that they're meeting, they happen to be up this year. It's a three year cycle or two years out of five, they rotate it. So they're going to meet in December and they have a screening committee that makes their ballot and then they vote. There's also some holdover people that didn't make it last time this committee met who were really interesting, especially to us here in the local area. One of them is Lou Pinella who came yeah. up one vote short of making it in last time mm. three years ago. Uh, Fred McGriff is now eligible for this because he had just come off the ballot yeah. after last time when that committee met. So you have Fred McGriff and Lou Pinella should probably be on this ballot this year. 
Uh, yeah. But do you do they take the hot button item and put Bonds and Clemens on the ballot right away? As long as Sosa and Schilling would also be eligible. Now this group also com- considers umpires. Uh, they also consider baseball executives. That's how Sela got in. George Steinbrenner was on the ballot last time. Didn't get a lot of support. So out of this group, they're going to come up with a ballot of like 12 names or something like that and vote on these people. And you have to get three-fourths of this group as well. Now, I don't think, and, and the sampling is probably pretty accurate, players currently in the Hall of Fame don't want the steroid guys in for the most part. Joe Morgan, before he died in 2017, I think it was, the famous second baseman from the Big Reg Machine, wrote a letter to all of us voters, and it came from the Hall of Fame. So even though it wasn't their official position, it kind of had that feeling with the Cooperstown trade. Uh, postmark kind of gave it away wink wink um and he basically said we as the current members of the hall of fame don't want the steroid guys in so they shortened up the year window they had joe morgan write this letter he wrote this letter and they endorsed it by sending it to us and it's clear where they stand so i don't know that barry bonds and roger clemens are going to have a very sympathetic very sympathetic audience with this committee with the today's game era committee if it wow. if they consider them this December, but will they look like they're kind of being cowards if they don't put them on the ballot? I, I don't even know if you're if you want to see Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens in. I don't even know if you're better off saying you want them on the ballot this year, so they get voted, and then if they don't make it, they come back three years later. Or should it just let three more years pass and maybe people are more receptive? Then I don't even know what the best answer is. But I don't think that they're going to have an easier time. I think they're going to have a harder time with this committee than they did with the baseball writers. So who's on? Is, I mean, is there a, are, who's on this committee? I mean, essentially, are they older people? Or are they are they? It's mostly know? older people, and they're appointed by the hall. And that's another mm-hmm. problem. Is you know maybe the that deck gets look. Harold Baines got voted in by this committee three years ago when Lou Pinella didn't. Mm. Tell me how many conversations we could have in the history of man, and you would say Harold Baines deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, and Lou Pinella doesn't, and Fred McGriff doesn't. And, and Gary Sheffield does it. We could go on and on and down the yeah. list. But Harold Baines was a mediocre player. I think he dropped off the writer's ballot. Like, you have to have 5% to stay on. He dropped off the first or second year, if I remember right. Like, Harold Baines never was even close. But he's friends with Jerry Reinsdorf and, like, Tony La Russa. And, like, there were all these accusations. The other thing was, we try to be transparent. Not all the writers release their ballots, but most of us release our ballots. Like, look, we have an incredible privilege and. I'll take the abuse. I mean, I, I liked reading on Twitter today how stupid I was in like 20 different ways people found a way to say it. This one guy argued with me that Kurt Schilling's really a nice guy and it shouldn't matter. And I'm like, it's still my vote. I'm not voting for him. I don't care. Like, at some point you just get fed <laughs> up. But it's our privilege. It's our right. And I think we deserve, people deserve for us to be transparent, whether we release them individually or BBWA releases them in about 10 days. But this committee doesn't release it. They vote secretly in the room. They tell us they don't even know yeah, who's voting for that's... who. They all vote by paper ballot. They just announce their winner and then... Sometimes somebody that comes to the press conference talks about it. Sometimes they don't. Like, it should be more transparent. But I think there's some allegiances and some bonds and some trade-offs that get built in these rooms. It's just not a great way to resolve or to, to kind of correct the wrongs, if that's how you look at it. Yeah, I'm for transparency, and, and I they don't have it in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and I wish they did. I think they should. If you're privileged enough to be a voter, you should be – you should be honorable enough to put your name on it. I mean, we put our name on everything, right? I mean, right, that's literally a what we, do. we put our name at the top of yeah. every story we write. <laughs> yeah, and we we take all kinds of crap for it. And if we're wrong, we're wrong. If we're right, we're right. And but but our name is always there. And at the end of the day, the one of the most important things you do as a voter is vote. And you're not going to put your name to it. I don't understand that. I wanted to ask you um, 
uh, about David Ortiz because correct me if I'm wrong. Like, okay, there is this thing about who actually tested positive and who did not, and who was suspected and pretty much known to be. We talk about Barry Bonds's hat size and who did not. Wasn't David Ortiz linked to steroids at some point? 2003, MLB did what they called survey testing. It was supposed to be anonymous. They were going to test, I think it was 100 players maybe, or yeah. 200 players. And if the deal was, and they made this deal with the union, if a certain percentage of the players tested proved to be positive, huh, we have a steroid problem. We probably need to implement a program of discipline and suspensions and regular testing. So they did this. Everybody was told it was anonymous. It was going to be, you know, number one, number two, no names were written down anywhere, whatever. It came back that they were well over the threshold. So they were going to implement a steroid testing and a program the next year. And then the New York Times somehow gets a list of names, maybe mm. leaked by somebody at baseball, who knows, that said these guys were among the ones who tested positive. There was never any confirmation. There was never any story about what they tested positive for. Like now if a guy gets pop they say he tested positive for and then it's usually like a 32 letter word that we don't understand and we all nod our head like we do and look it up and google it and say what it was so never said what it was for never said like how it worked or anything never confirmation but it just kind of hung out there so baseball then implemented a regular testing program the next year that was 2004 david ortiz played through the 2016 season he never tested positive or at least was never disciplined for testing positive was never suspended never anything was announced never tested positive the last weekend of the 2016 season, uh, Rob Manfred was at wherever the Red Sox were playing. I guess it was at home for like Ortiz's farewell. He was asked about it. He basically said that should not be held against David Ortiz. We went back and looked at that. There were false positives in that group. There were people that tested for substances that actually weren't illegal substances. We miscategorized some of the reporting on that. But because we knew we were over the threshold, we were implementing a program, we never like did a deep dive into where the issues were, but this should not be held against them. It should not be considered a positive. So David Ortiz got a lifeline. Whether he did or didn't, I don't know. But I, I will say this, and to his credit, he said this last night on his Zoom call when he was asked, or Tuesday night on his Zoom call when he was asked about it. I didn't test positive the rest of my, you know, the whole my whole career when they started it until I finished, I never tested positive. So I, I, I think he has a point there. Like, if he was, and he there was a reason he showed up dirty in that survey testing and he corrected it and you look at his numbers he was a really good player starting in 2003 going to 2016 so he did it without getting caught he did it the right way i think it's how you have to look at it. i don't think he did anything wrong he never got caught for doing anything but yeah that that still did I, and that's one of the reasons people that didn't vote for him there were people who said no he's associated with stars on the voting forum who didn't read the whole story didn't go back and do the research didn't check their sheet to quote your favorite quarterback he just, you know, I think people just said, oh, he's associated with it. I'm not voting for him. If you take the commissioner at his word, if you look at the history of Ortiz going from 04 through 16 without ever testing positive, I think you probably have to say, okay, he wasn't. He didn't. He didn't do it. Um, you know, I had no problem voting for him. I think a lot of people uh, feel like he did play clean. And look, you mentioned before the human nature of this. He's the antithesis of Barry Bonds. David Ortiz was gregarious. He was very accommodating to the media. He was funny. He was open. He knew what you were looking for. He also earned a ton of goodwill after that Boston uh, Marathon bombing. Remember, this is my effing city, the speech he gave on yeah. the mound at Fenway Park when they resumed play there and, and really kind of put himself in, in 
glorified status and hallowed ground. He was asked on that Zoom call, like, you're up there with the greats of all Boston sports history. And I, mm-hmm. he almost, like, broke down. Like, you know, he yeah, he spent time with Bobby Orr, he said, and some of those Celtic guys. And he said it was just amazing to him to, to be on that same platform with those guys. When you talk about not testing positive or not, you know, did Barry Bonds? No. That's the thing. Barry Bonds, for, for all of the speculation – the commentary, the circumstantial evidence, the the court testimony, the legal filings, the cream in the clear, the growing hat size, for all that, Barry Bonds never tested positive, never got suspended. Roger Clemens never tested positive, never got suspended. I mean, technically Sammy Sosa didn't either, but I kind of give him a, a discredit for getting caught using a corked bat, which you could argue is much more blatant cheating than using steroids. Yeah, that's right. And and he used it against the 2003 Devil Rays. Rick, you could hit the 2003 <laughs> Devil Rays. I'll never forget that, man. Toby what, Hall picked what were up the... that bat. I, I mean, I, if I ever have no other image of Toby Hall, but him picking up that bat and looking at it and thinking, oh, crap, we got us an issue, don't we? <laughs> and he wanted to like what, throw what? that bat and run. <laughs> I mean, literally, there were like there were like balls coming out, or some kind of cork yeah, thing. Yeah, like, I think was like, like super balls came out, flying yeah. out. It was like, and they, so you you people want to argue Sammy Sosa should be in the Hall of Fame? I get it, but he was caught cheating in the game. Like that's ten times more directly cheating than using steroids. How is that not the biggest red flag? Well, and then I'll just bring this up because I've heard it, and I, I don't think it's a great comparison, but let, let's just do this, right? So if you're the Houston Astros, um, any of those guys going to not go to the Hall of Fame because they cheated in a different way? See, I, I think that's going to end up looking like a collective thing and not an individual mm-hmm. thing. And yeah. it, there's probably yeah. some validity to that because I, I don't know, and I guess you know data is, is so available now. Somebody who had a lot of free time could go back and like look at every single at bat that every Astros player had during the period when they were considered cheating and you know figure out did 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 Carlos Correa get 17 more hits because he hit pitches when you could clearly hear he was tipped off what was coming and then what would be his stats without those 17 hits but like, I, I don't know I don't think the individual guys I think there'll be some general dismissal of them and I don't think any of them will be first ballot guys if they were even worthy for that because people kind of hold that first ballot election, which has made Ortiz's even more special as kind of a prize for the elite of the elite. Uh, but I, I don't think the Astros guy is going to be penalized individually for it. I really don't. Well, here's all I'll say about the NFL. The difference between the, the pro football writers, of course, it's a much larger group. Um, the NFL is a very, it's a smaller group. It's predominantly, and I don't know whether they have 44, 46 voters. Forgive me. I've been in that room one time as an alternate when Ira Kaufman couldn't make it, who represents Tampa Bay uh, in the voting. Um, and it's incredibly political. Uh, it's done in secrecy, essentially. Now, the last few years it's been done over Zoom, but... Usually you gather in a room. Uh, they used to do it the day, the morning before the Super Bowl, which is always convenient when you've worked a whole Super Bowl, and then it's Saturday morning at 6.30, you get to vote on Hall of Fame. And it usually lasts between seven and eight hours of debate. You have, 15, you have 15 finalists. You start it at 100. They will it down to 25. Then 15 are the finalists. The 15 finalists actually get debated in the room. They get presented to the Hall of Fame voters um, and then basically you, you, you take a once-over vote and they narrow it down to 10, then they narrow it down to 5, and then it's basically a yes-no, and if you get 80% uh, 
if you're one of the five, you're in the Hall of Fame. Now, that's modern day players, and then there's, you know, there's contributors. There's usually one one person that the uh, there's a committee that nominates a contributor. There's a committee that nominates a senior candidate, and that's kind of a yes/no type thing. But the thing, the thing about um, you know the Pro Football Hall of Fame, they will have a class of five modern day players almost every year. I don't know that they've excluded that in in the years that I've covered uh, the the NFL, um, but it's interesting because they also you know you you have so many years to to be voted that way, and then there's a seniors committee, and then they'll go and you know look at people who have exhausted their number of years, whether it's ten or fifteen. Um, and say, okay, this guy was overlooked, and it's a little harder to get in that way because usually one senior candidate, you know, every every year. Um, but that one, you know, the thing about the NFL, it's not transparent. You don't put your name on it, um, and there's only three hundred and something odd, three thirty. I don't know the number, three thirty, three forty, Hall of Fame football players from in a hundred years, like. You know, so it's it's not a it's not an incredibly large number. It's growing faster now, um, and you know, and football does not address PEDs. Uh, they were generally accepted at one point. You know, I don't know how many Pittsburgh Steelers died of of you know some of that stuff. Um, so it's it's a totally different dynamic in terms of that. But you know, I I don't know which system is better. I I kind of like what the NFL does in that you know, they're going to have five players and maybe not five players are worthy, but usually if you're in that 15, you're going to get in the hall of fame. Took John Lynch seven years in that room, which is a long time as a finalist to get in the hall of fame. Rodney Barber's up this year. He could make it in his second year as a finalist. Um, you got to wait five years before you're eligible. What is the waiting period for baseball? Is it five years? It's five years, and then, um, like I said, you get to spend the tenure on the ballot. So, And then the other thing yeah. with baseball is the ballot. Like this year, it was 30. A screening committee makes the ballot. You can only vote for 10. So there's, And there's wow. none of that binary, like, yes or no. You can vote for 10. Some years, you might have 15 guys you think are worthy. you got to pick 10. And some people like start gaming the system. Like, well, I know Derek Jeter's going to get in, so I won't waste one of my votes on him because I want to, you know, wh- right. whatever. I want to give James Shields my – he's not eligible yet, but I want to give James Shields my vote because uh, I want to keep him in the running, but I'm not going to vote for Jeter because I know he's going to make it anyway. And then you're like suddenly the one person who didn't vote for Derek Jeter. Like, how weird would that be? So there's, it, yeah. it kind of forces this weird gaming. Some people have suggested we drop the rule of 10. Some people have suggested we just go to a simple binary system, like yes or no. There's 30 names on the ballot. If you think you're a Hall of Famer, vote yes. If you think they're not, vote no. And then we take, you know, like you say, maybe you take the top, you only know, let five in a year. There's no limit. We voted in, we've had some classes of three or four. I don't know if we've had any bigger than that, but I don't think we have a limit. Like, in theory, a bunch of people could get in if they all got 75%, but that threshold is just so high. But you've had classes where there were nobody that got in in the modern era, Last year. Last year. And, in fact, you know, David Ortiz was, what, 13 votes from it being back-to-back shutouts, which would have been the first time. Actually, baseball didn't go to annual voting by the writers until the early 60s. So it would have been the first time since then that in consecutive years – uh, there were shutouts like that. It was like a period in the 40s where I think they did vote in back-to-back years just because it was done randomly and they had shutout too, but it would have been back-to-back shutouts. And and you know, then you get into like, this is a financial thing. Like the Baseball Hall of Fame is similar to football. It's in an out-of-the-way place. You don't go to Cooperstown, New York by accident. You go right. to Cooperstown, New York to see the Hall of Fame. The Hall of Fame makes, and that 
whole city makes more money in induction weekend, I'm sure, yes. than you the rest of the year combined. So yes. having no active players voted in, like there, there's Terrible. probably pizza shops closing because of that. Like yeah. it's a big deal. Like there's a financial incentive for the Hall of Fame to have more people in. No question. Canton, Ohio uh, exists largely because of one weekend a year, and that's the Pro Football Hall of Fame induction ceremonies and uh, and usually and, and then a football game, a preseason football game that they play at, at what essentially is a high school stadium, but it's you know the birthplace of, of the National Football League and all of that. Um, so si- similar in that it's a small town in Ohio that exists largely, uh, the Hall of Fame does, uh, as a museum. And um, not affiliated directly with the NFL, certainly supported by it. Um, but yeah, same same kind of deal. And um, you know, I enjoy. I mean, I enjoy going there. I haven't been to the. Ba- I can't believe I have. I mean, of all people, wow! I'm surprised to, to hear that I you know, haven't been to Cooperstown. I know. I know. Well, actually, one of my wife's pages that she laid out for the St. Louis Post Dispatch when McGuire hit a home run is in the Hall of Fame, and I haven't. Wow! Been so she's um, in the Hall of Fame. And you haven't even been. She's there. in the wow. Pro Football Hall of Fame, or the Pro Football Baseball, or Pro Football Baseball. I love it. me, the Baseball I love Hall of Fame, and I and I have never visited. But um, that said, like it, it it is a weird comparison. Like um, it is so different. You have. How many people can vote on on the uh, baseball writers? How many people voted this year, for example? This year, just under four hundred voted, like three hundred and seventy nine. I, I mean, that's was. that's an incredible amount of people, right? Voting on this, and in in the in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, like I said, maybe forty five, forty seven. Right. And you know what else and, is weird all, about yours is that, like, and, and I, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's cool if you're the person picked for this, but I think it'd be a really uncomfortable position. Like, do, doesn't somebody go up and make the case for like the guy from their hometown? Absolutely. Like you, Your job. You, like you yes. present, right? That's the word. Like I, so you Ira present. Kaufman, you said is the Tampa guy. That's he correct. would present Rondé Barber. That like, is correct. If, so, so what happens what you is you what have. What if you don't like the guy? What if the guy blew you off for some interviews? What if he pissed you off? What if he lied to you? What if Antonio Brown's up for the Hall of Fame, Rick, and you have to present him one year? How's that going to go? It's going to go well for Antonio. <laughs> Not so much for me. I'm going to show his Vax card. I'm going to hold it up and say, well. <laughs> Um, COVID, the COVID era, not the steroid era, the COVID era. Um, yeah, right. Like, I mean, uh, I Antonio Brown, I, I hate we're, to, I mean, Antonio Brown's like a first career. ballot guy. It's a first ballot guy, but you're right. You're right in that there are guys. And look, listen, listen, Terrell Owens did not make the Hall of Fame for a number of years because he pissed a lot of people off. Period. Okay. Shouldn't happen. I don't know that he was a first ballot guy, but he shouldn't have waited as long as he did. Um, there are, there is punitive. There's no question about it. It is strange because you feel a little like Homer radio, right? It's like, okay, right. I covered the guy, and now I'm pitching for him to go in the Hall of Fame where normally I'm objected about this. And what if I don't really think he's a Hall of Famer, but it's your job to make the case and let everybody else decide. But no doubt that your passion or lack of passion um, can certainly affect his candidacy. And the player has nothing to say about it because they've scored all the touchdowns and, and, and you know all that they can do. So you get five minutes – to make your case and you might have to make it every year for eight years, nine years, whatever. Um, and you got to come up with new ideas and, and, and really it's building a consensus And there. Let's face it. In, when there's only so many voters, when there's only 43, 45, whatever it is, um, you're really trying to build alliances. Like, you know what? We've got all these offensive linemen. How about this year we get your guy in and the next year you get my guy in, or we, you have cues like, how long has this guy waited? And it's like, well, he's waited longer than this guy. Okay, then he should go in before. And so there's all this sort of like non-spoken 
etiquette when it comes to being a finalist in the Pro Football Hall of Fame that is weird to me because we all agree that most of the guys, when you make it to the 15, you probably are a Hall of Famer. Um, there's very few that like, and then there's this other thing, and I don't know if this is true in baseball, like, oh, he's a first ballot guy. Like, you hold a special reverence for, oh, I right. think he's a Hall of Famer, not a first ballot guy. Nope, there is. You know what there's I mean? Like, is that in baseball. Ortiz was the 58th first ballot guy, and I think there's like 280 like players that were voted in as players. So, well, yeah, it, it is mm-hmm. definitely a thing. Like, a first ballot is a thing. Yeah, you got to hold a special reverence for them. And, you know, so, yeah, it's, it's I mean, hey, we're all human beings. We're all affected by outside, you know, uh, stimulus and all that stuff. So, um, but, uh, I look, we'll forever debate Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and people. I agree with you. I think they, they, I, I, I know what I see and, and you've been around baseball. So long, Mark, you know, this too, these were the greatest players in the game and whether, what they took or when they took it, it didn't matter because long before Barry Bonds had sides changed, he was still one of the best players in the game, period. Um, he had the numbers then, even before, you know, he started making ridiculous numbers afterwards. So I know what I saw, you know, and that's the thing. It's like, how do you deny somebody, um, entrance in, into the hall of fame when you know, you know, they were the best players in the game. And, and it's not like you, similarly, you don't know that people already in didn't do the same. Absolutely. I am not casting aspersions or making accusations here, but there is plenty of speculation that Mike Piazza was using. There's plenty of speculation that Pudge Rodriguez was using. Mm -hmm. They have both been voted in. That's just two from the recent years. We don't even know what players were using. I mean, there used to be talk in clubhouses about guys eating greenies like M&Ms. Those were amphetamines. Like, what do you think that was? That was a performance-enhancing drug. There's guys that would talk about drinking coffee. They would talk about beating up. They weren't drinking regular coffee. That coffee had something in it. Like, this was being Mm -hmm. done in baseball for a long time. So it's not like this is new or this is different. It was just called other things back then. But you don't know, and no one knows. And that's why I I don't like being in the position of trying to be a police detective and a chemist and a biomechanist and all this to figure out, like, how good would these guys have been if they weren't using? How much impact did it make? How did it change their career? What would they have done if they hadn't done it? Would you know? And then if the polit- the pitchers had more velocity, were the hitters being punished? Like you, you, you're going to drive yourself crazy thinking in these circles. You have to go by what these guys did. If they cheated and got caught is one thing. If they did what was socially accepted as their part of the game at that period of time and they succeeded, we're we're punishing them for that. I just don't, I don't get it. You can't figure it out and you don't know what the other guys did. It's not like they're the only ones. Yeah, I totally agree. Something got Mickey Mantle up every day might have been some really strong coffee but he was known to he was known to stay out a little bit and he (laughs) he still managed to get up and get his four at bats and somehow somehow got it done so who knows what he used but uh great discussion mark great uh, columns of course you can read them in the tampa bay times and on tampabay.com and um hey man we'll have to do this more often thanks for thanks for uh, uh filing your question into the mailbag (laughs) <laughs> yeah Appreciate boy it. it got me a fun half hour out of that didn't it <laughs> yeah sorry about that brother no, that was fun I, I i my takeaway from this is that i am just so impressed to know that val is in the hall of fame and you've never even been well and i think that's pretty much the story of my life um <laughs> you know as i as i say my my autobiography which is coming out soon is nobody knows i'm famous so 
Think about that for a while. That's well, and, and really... being married to you, she's probably in the Hall of Fame for wives too. So she's actually going to be in two well, Hall of Fames, right? There's listen. We all we all out kicked our coverage on that one. Hey, I Mark, I, I got another one for you, Mark. All right, I'm in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Wow! Wow! Go. That's and right. I, you are. And I'm, that's, on, I'm on that's... a plaque in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Wow, that's very impressive. Mm-hmm. Oh, tell so him I, who it is. Tell said, tell him who yeah. you're in the background. <laughs> So Marty yeah. Brenneman, the Hall of Fame announcer for the Cincinnati right. Reds, the day mm-hmm. they took his picture for the plaque, I'm in the background <laughs> working. You can see my profile shot behind wow. him. All right. I'm going to check that out. Well, I, if I had actually, I still have to return my paperwork. It, remember when the Rays threw that no-hitter last year the, that didn't count as a no-hitter, the seven-inning no-hitter? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they asked for my scorecard, and I sent it in, and they send you back this paperwork you have to sign, which gives them the right to display it and give you your credit for it. And I lost the freaking paperwork. So... At some oh. point, I need to send that back in. And then all of us will be in the Hall of Fame except for Rick, Steve. <laughs> You'll be in. I'll be in. And Val will be in. We'll have a little Hall of Fame reunion and Rick can drive us. Well, and I listen, I'm going to make a shameless plug here. You can make it for me, but I'm going to make it for you. Mark Topkins is going to be a Hall of Fame baseball writer. It sh- is already and should be in there and will be in there, I'm convinced. And all I have to do is die, and maybe one day I'll get into the uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame. <laughs> <laughs> but one day maybe we'll both be in who knows there we who go. knows there we, go. we still got we time go. yeah. the times will have so. a big party for us absolutely they will absolutely so thanks so much again for your mailbag questions answered 100 percent correctly as we always do <laughs> all right guys see you later always great to talk to mark topkin of course we'll follow the nfl coaching news all day long we've got a lightning game right tonight they're back in action yeah they're against the devils tonight they haven't played since saturday night in san jose so they're back on the ice andre palat will return nikita kucherov out in covid protocols and zach bogosian eric chernak out at least through the all-star break next weekend so they will not be back for the three games left before the all-star break tonight against new jersey you get Vegas on Saturday night, San Jose on Tuesday night, and then they'll get a break for, uh, what, nine days until they play some makeup games on the 10th, 11th, and 15th of the month. And they'll have another about nine or 10 day break before they play again. So it's uh, normally they're going to have a three week Olympic break. They're going to make up three games in that time, but lightning a very spaced out schedule, which is a little bizarre and weird. Yeah, I'm going to try to make that Saturday game with the girls in, against Las Vegas. That'll be a fun one for sure at Emily Arena. Uh, remember now the 18th annual Firestone Grand Prix of St. Petersburg presented by RP Funding. It's going to happen February 25th to the 27th this year. Visit gpsaintpete.com for race information and tickets. We'll have more on uh, the Bucks coaching situation. Perhaps Jacksonville and Byron Leftwich get together and, and uh, decide what they're going to do. We've got Todd Bowles is in Las Vegas for the Raiders head coaching job as well as John Spitek, who is interviewing for the GM job. So keep it right here on TampaBay.com and in the Tampa Bay Times. You can follow all the latest information about the Bucks and their offseason. we got mailbag questions uh, tomorrow left over as well. So uh, get right here. We're here every Monday through Friday, of course, on Sports Day Tampa Bay. Thanks for listening. For Steve Burstink, I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times. Have a great day, everybody. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.